Okay, hold on just a second. I'm sorry. This is ACB Media 3. They're getting the presentation ready and we'll begin shortly. I think we're ready to go when, yeah, when you guys are. Uh, Clint, let me see if I can get some more volume here. Okay, this is as loud as I can get it, and I would get it louder, but I don't have the capability. I don't know if it's going to come over the stream or not, but let's try this. I'll get this as close as I can to the to the speaker on my laptop. It's not coming through Zoom or the stream. Okay. All right. Well, we, we tried that. I'm sorry that that didn't work. Um, now, we're going to kind of, uh, we're going to try something different here just because Cynthia is not available due to illness and uh, do a little thing off the, off the cuff here. Just a second. Can you email me the file by chance? Can I email you the uh, what you want to play? What I was trying to play? Yes. 
I certainly, I certainly can. Um, what's your email? It's Douglas Hunsinger, D-O-U-G-L-A-S-H-U-N-S-I-N-G-E-R at Outlook.com. All right, let me try. No, no dot in there, just Douglas Hunsinger? Yes.
if you've sent it, there's nothing here yet. Okay, now it should have come. If I spelled your name right, you should have it here in just a second. And there's a there's a link in the in the midst of that email that's got HTTPS, and then it's got the link there. Got it. Hang on. Sorry about these technical difficulties, guys, but. When you try to do things at the last second, sometimes things you have to be a little flexible. As he's pulling this up, I will give you an introduction. This is Steve Spiker uh, doing an interview about his practice in uh, primarily in social security work. Uh, and Steve lived in Lincoln and he was a very active member of, of this organization for, for many years. And he was a tireless worker and uh, he, he loved blind attorneys and he loved the work and uh, very nice guy, very nice guy. I'm Chris Prentice, and yes, I'm an attorney and have been for 35 years. You bet. And you are? It won't let me open the link. <laughs> are you kidding me? No. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we tried that. Um, all right. This is what this is what we're going to do, and this this was an alternative program that we had talked about uh, when we were planning the, the conference. Um, I'm going to I'm going to take liberty liberty to uh, make a presentation to y'all about uh, what uh, uh, what what I'm currently doing. Uh, I've changed jobs since the last time we met. Uh, I am I'm now an assistant district attorney in the 286th Judicial District of Texas, which is a two-county area of uh, Hockley County and Cochrane County in West Texas. And uh, those of you who know me, I was in Austin. I moved about 400 miles to the northwest up to the High Plains close to Lubbock, which is the area where I grew up and where I lived for many years before the last 12 in Austin. And so I took this job about seven and a half months ago and the third week I was working there, uh, we started a murder trial. And I had never been a part of a murder trial. I've done criminal de defense work and I've done uh, prosecutor work, but not, not ever worked on a murder case. Well, uh, we had one and it was an interesting case. It was a young man who was about 27 years old. And uh, I think this was all over a girl that uh, he didn't... Uh, really have a current relationship with and neither did the guy that he shot but um the other and the other thing that was involved was a lot of methamphetamine 
I think uh, both guys were dealers and both guys uh, uh, were also users. And uh, the, the gentleman, the victim of the murder, made the mistake of taking a short rod with him to a gunfight. And that didn't turn out well for him. And uh, so we, we had a trial that, and it was interesting because uh, this was, I think the second trial that they had done uh, my DA is a new DA. She just got, she got appointed by the governor in 2019 and she ran for election in 2020. So she'd only been in office uh, a couple of years when, uh, when we started this. And um, instead of having jury selection in the courthouse, we had it in the local community center so they could uh, uh, use some social distancing for the uh, members of the veneer panel. And so they were like five or six feet apart and they took up most of the open area of the, uh, of the community center and, and the judge and, and the, the attorneys on both sides, we were up at the front and they went from all the way to the left side of the room to all the way to the right side of the room. And the way that uh, they were distinguished is they all were given very large numbers that were on uh, probably about the size of a, a half a sheet of, of paper. And uh, so when questions were asked, you know, that required an individual answer, then they would, they would raise their cards. And so everybody would write down the numbers and uh, I was sitting second chair. I did not. And, and that's what I've done at this point because the elected DA, uh, she's the one in the limelight. I'm, perfectly happy being uh, uh, working behind her and helping making make sure she's prepared and that our our evidence and our witnesses are prepared and um, so we got the we got the jury selected at the community center then we went to the courthouse and we had the regular 12 jurors plus we had two alternates that uh, that were selected uh, throughout through the four-hour process and uh it was it was really it was really quite interesting uh, the way that the trial uh, went through the uh, uh, we had uh, and, and it's different because I'd been I'd been working in administrative law and government law for the last 12 years. So I hadn't been in a criminal courtroom in a long time. But, uh, you know, one of the things they now have is uh, we have access to all the jail calls that the inmates make while they're sitting in jail. And these people are not the smartest people on the planet. Um, I mean, even though every time they get on a call, it reminds them that every call is recorded and could be used later. Uh, they don't always pay attention to that. And um, uh, one of the things that might have had an impact on the decision of the jury in this case was the fact that that there were a couple of calls that he made while he was sitting in jail that, you know, I'm going to take care of him once I get out of here kind of thing. And um, so it showed that he's, he's not the, the docile person that the defense counsel was trying to paint him out to be. Um, the trial took most of the week and um, uh, the jury came back with a, with a guilty verdict. And so then we went into punishment and this kid had really didn't have any priors, but it didn't show that he was, he was going to do very well. And the, the jury came back with punishment, gave him 55 years in prison. And uh, so that was, that was a good way to get started. We, we did that trial. I, I started the middle of November. We did that trial 
beginning the end of November into the first few days of December. Um, our next trial a few months later was another murder trial. And the interesting thing about this one was it was a young man that had killed his dad while dad was asleep. And uh, the whole thing was because the, the boy was about 17, 18 years old. I think he just turned 18. He wanted his girlfriend to move into the house. He was actually living with his grandparents because his dad was a long haul trucker and he was not home very much. And so he, uh, he wanted the girlfriend to move in and the grandparents had said no. And dad did too. And he apparently decided that that was more than he could take. And so um, dad was asleep on the couch and he went and got uh, one of the guns in the house and he stood over him in the dark and shot him in the head from behind the couch, about three feet away from his head, one shot to the head and, and killed him. Uh, he calmly turned on the light, went over and picked up the, uh, the uh, cartridge that had you know, gone to the floor, picked that up and went outside and tossed it. Uh, then he stole his dad's pickup and went, went into, went into Lubbock, which is about 25 miles from where, uh, where this happened out in the country. And then people started calling, trying saying his grandparents were trying to get a hold of him and his dad because they were supposed to be going to a family reunion downstate. And uh, when they started calling, he's like, "Well, uh, we're we're, uh, we're we're having a talk." And then another time, "Well, well, Dad's looking at a map. We're driving down down the county roads, and uh, the county roads in in uh, West Texas are not paved. These are dirt roads, and they're not on the map." So. It was another lie, but, um, he, he kept that charade on. And then finally the grandparents didn't think that they were getting the truth. So they made a, they made a, a wellness check request to the sheriff's office and the sheriff's office guys went over to the house and they couldn't, they couldn't get in. So they were going to, they were going to leave. So they said, well, we'll give you the combination to the garage. And they're like, we're not going in there. So, they called their neighbors and gave it to the neighbors and they came over and opened the garage door and went in and found the dad dead on the couch. And he, he'd already been laying there uh, at least 36 hours. I think when they found him, um, but the Rangers, the Texas Rangers, which is the elite uh, uh, police force of this part of the state, uh, the department of public safety, they're the, uh, they basically provide assistance to uh, small rural sheriffs, departments as well as they handle special investigations and things like that it's it's not quite as hollywood like as walker texas ranger but they are they are the elite uh, law enforcement in the state and they they do come in on cases like this and they they came in on this one and they they got out there and they started taking pictures they brought in a a machine that would basically recreate the 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 whole situation and as far as diagrams and and uh, the size of the room and and everything else it was quite interesting and one of the other things they did was they uh they had the phone of the of the son that the defendant had it pinged and they narrowed it down to about uh a thousand feet in any direction from the uh from the near cell tower and so one of the Rangers and, and a couple of the deputies went into Lubbock because he'd gone to Lubbock and he was still there. 
and they knew what the pickup looked like. So they were looking for the pickup and with the information from, from the pings on his phone and knowing what the pickup looked like and having the, the plate number for that pickup, they were able to find him. And, uh, he was at a house with some friends and uh, he hadn't told them what he'd done or anything. He just said he needed a place to stay for a few days. Well, he didn't make it a few days. He made, I think one night and then, um, the, uh, Rangers took him to the Ranger and the deputies took him to the, to the Rangers office in, uh, in Lubbock. And he basically, uh, he basically told him the whole story. He confessed. And then one of the things the ranger asked him was, do you realize that what you did was wrong? He goes, yeah, I know it was wrong, but I was mad. And, um, so he was, uh, he was taken into custody and, and this happened, unfortunately this happened in 2017 before COVID and the DA that was the predecessor to my boss had basically stopped, stopped working. He quit coming into work and he ended up, he ended up resigning and then he ended up also uh, giving up his license in lieu of some other issues that he would have had to deal with. So this case had sat for a long time. And so uh, for some reason he had agreed to let this kid out and he'd been staying with his mom down around Houston and until trial. And then uh, so we go to trial and, and his, the defense counsel they tried to make this case about the insanity plea. Well, we, he was examined oh, two or three times by two different uh, uh, psychologists. And one of them claimed that, that he first, he claimed that he was unable to assist his, uh, his counsel in his defense. So he's saying he wasn't competent to stand trial. Then he came back and said he was competent to stand trial, but he was insane. And, uh, then we had another guy that did, that we had uh, come and do a psychological on him, and he said, "No, he's 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 uh, he's fit and he's and he's sane because the whole thing, the insanity defense is almost impossible to use in a criminal case because you've got to be able to prove at the time of the action that they didn't know the difference between right and wrong, and here we had him just you know." you know, less than 48 hours after the event occurred. And he told, he told the Texas Ranger, well, I know it was wrong. So obviously he knew the difference between right and wrong, but they tried to go with that. And, and the, uh, the battle of the psychologist was, it was almost humorous the way that um, one of them was just bending over backwards, trying to help the defense, but it didn't, it didn't take, and the jury didn't buy it. And, um, he ended up getting convicted. He was not found not guilty by reason of insanity or anything like that. The jury found him guilty and, and assessed punishment at 47 years in prison. Um, the way it works in Texas, uh, because of the type of offenses that those two murder cases were and the fact that they used deadly weapons, they have to do a minimum of half their sentence before they're eligible for parole. So the guy that got 55 years will have to do at least 27 and a half before he's even eligible to, to ask for parole. And the, the, the second one that got the 47 years will have to do at least 23 and a half uh, in prison before he can ask for parole. And that's not guaranteed. It all depends on uh, good behavior and, 
and different things like that in the in the prison but they will not they will not have a wholesale release of uh, inmates like they do in some other states where some of you live um so the next trial was was in may and this was in cochran county which is our smaller county it only has about five or six thousand people altogether. it's very very small county uh, there's one there's really one town and it's only got about 2000 people in it and it's it's drying up but uh, there is a lot of oil in the county so they they're not going broke quite yet but uh, we tried that case and um, the interesting thing about that case is the evening of the first day the first day when we were picking the jury there was a a tornado about about a mile wide that uh, was on the ground for a couple of hours that started just a few miles north of of Morton, which is where the courthouse is, where we were trying the case. And it stayed on the ground for a couple of hours. It, it came within a few miles of Leveland where, where I live and where the other courthouse is. And um, uh, thankfully it stayed out in the country and didn't do much damage. But one of the things it did damage was the sheriff's house. It uh, gave him an extra door in his wall, uh, his outer wall that he did not need uh, it picked up, I think it was a chicken coop and, and tossed it against the side of the house and created a big gap that he had to have repaired. And he had a lot of water come in his house, but um, um, that was the only damage. But this trial was an aggravated sexual assault of a child under 14. And uh, unfortunately, the, these are these cases are harder to try. I'd, I'd much rather try a murder case than an aggravated sexual assault of a child because you're you're, you're dealing, you're starting to deal with some really uh, difficult people that have some major issues that um, uh, it's, it's hard to even, you know, stomach some of this stuff, but uh, you know, we, we did a, we did a good job with that one. And unfortunately this, this guy, what he, the child that he assaulted was his own daughter. And um, she was about 11 or 12 when it started she was 14 at the time this incident occurred and at the time of trial she was 16 and she actually got on the stand we called her as one of our witnesses and she got on the stand and said nothing happened um she was this sounds a little weird but she was in love with him not i love my daddy it's i love my daddy and it was you know just it's it's sick um Fortunately, we had uh, DNA evidence that did say that it did happen. And so he was convicted. And then during punishment, we were able to bring in two other young ladies. One was an older daughter of his that he had done the same thing to a few years before. And then another one was an older lady that was in her late 20s, early 30s that he had done that to her back in the early 2000s. And uh, when she was uh, his live-in girlfriend or whatever she was it was it was her cousin's daughter that she was watching while the while the, her cousin worked overnight in town and unfortunately she was not safe and those those young ladies testified and they didn't back off their testimony at all and the jury really wasn't interested in this particular defendant coming back to town anytime soon so they sentenced him to 65 years in prison and based on Texas law, he'll have to do at least 30 years before he's eligible for parole. And um, that's kind of the way the, 
the system works in, in Texas. If you get a sentence of 60 years or more, you have to do at least 30 before you're eligible for parole. Um, these, these cases are, are interesting. They're each a little bit different. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, the way you have uh, DNA evidence, you've got, uh, we always, before we take a case to trial, we go and listen to the, the inmate phone calls, you know, a lot, a lot of them can't make, they don't make bonds. So they stay in jail pending trial. So we spend quite a bit of time listening to their jail calls to see what their attitude and their behavior is. You get really get to know someone when you listen to their phone calls. And unfortunately they're not smart enough to realize, well, gee, they might actually listen to these things, but uh, you know, that's okay. They, they're, they're on notice. They know that it's being recorded and, and it can be listened to, but I think they just don't think about it. And uh, sometimes they let their guard down and they'll say things that they probably wish they hadn't have said. Um, yes, sir. Um, one um, in, in Texas is the um, you said the jury sentence, though, and that so that's in other states that I'm aware of, the judge sentences after perhaps a recommendation by the prosecutor or perhaps the jury, but it, it's, um, I wanted to understand how that works. And also, can you um, describe what you do to, uh, to prepare witnesses and to assist the, the district attorney? All right. In, in Texas, the, the way the system works in a criminal case, whether it's whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, uh, every defendant has the choice. They can either go to the judge for punishment or they can go to a jury. Now, most of them prefer most of them prefer the jury because they think it's easier to convince one of 12 people that I'm really a nice person and you don't want to send me to prison or send me to jail for a long time. Uh, rather than try to convince a judge. And there are a lot of judges that, well, if you're coming to me for punishment, I'm just going to give you the max. So most, most criminal defendants in, in Texas, I'd say probably 90% choose the jury to assess punishment. And it's not a recommendation. It's if the jury says 80 years, it's 80 years. And the judge will pronounce that sentence as long as it's within the the, the punishment range and they're given that the court gives them a charge uh, it's in writing. And then the judge reads it before they go do the uh, punishment uh, uh, deliberations. And it's a separate deliberation. You do the guilt innocence phase. Then you have a whole different, basically a whole different trial where you uh, introduce evidence for punishment. You show, you'll show stuff about their criminal history. You'll, you may have some of the, some victims testify. Sometimes the victims make a victim impact statement. Um, and then you go to closing argument, you know, the defense can present something. Well, you know, they'll present some character witnesses. Well, well, Jimmy's not a bad guy. He just made it. He just had a bad day and, and he would never do that again. And, and they'll, you know, sometimes they'll bring, they'll bring ministers. They'll bring, they'll bring, you know, grandma, whoever they can find to say something nice about them. Other times they won't bring anybody. They're just like, I'm just, I've already lost. I'm, I don't want to make it worse. And nobody would say anything nice about me. So I better not call anybody. Um, but the jury, the jury, then, you know, after argument, the jury goes and does a separate deliberation and however long it takes until they reach a, a unanimous decision, they can, 
like in these cases, they could assess uh, punishment in these three cases was was a five to 99 years in prison or life. And then they could also assess a, a, a fine of up to $10,000. And so they could, they could do, and a lot of times they'll do a pretty hefty fine. And the nice thing about that is you think, well, they're going to prison. We're, they're not, you're not going to be able to get any of the fine money, but Texas has a provision that um, if, if, uh, if Steve Mendelson is sitting in prison and and judy and 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 his friends uh steve and and chris bell sent a lot of money to put in his commissary account so he can so he can go buy extra goodies that he's not getting for meals if he wants to get a candy bar or a, a, a new razor or or uh something like that 10 uh, percent of all the money that goes into the commissary account go is is taken off the top and goes to pay toward his fine court costs and court appointed attorney's fees so if, if mom and grandma are sending a lot of money to, to the commissary thinking they're going to take good care of their, their uh, misguided uh, relative, then uh, 10% of that money all goes back to the county to help defray the, the, the fines, the court costs. And obviously, if somebody's fined $10,000, you're probably not going to get all that money, but you will get some of it. So that's, that's kind of how they recover that because people that well, why are you assessing a $10,000 fine? He's going away to prison for 50 years. He's not going to pay that. Well, uh, some of it will get paid because there will be, there will be friends or, or relatives that'll put money in the commissary account because they'll feel sorry for him. So uh, at least, at least some of that will get covered. But um, as far as what I do to prepare, uh, to help prepare for trial, um, I'll prepare business records, affidavits of, uh, different records that we want to get in. So we don't have to call the custodian. If you file those business records um, along with an affidavit signed by the custodian, if you get those filed of record 14 days before trial, then you don't have to call the custodian of records to say, are these your records? Were these kept in the normal course of business? Was it, were these things uh, uh, kept track of by, by someone that's part of the, organization da, 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 are these originals or exact copies of the originals all that stuff that's on the affidavit you don't have to ask those questions you don't have to do that prove up you just you just refer to it those business records are on file and and they've been on file for 14 days so that stuff comes in and you don't have to worry about taking the extra time to call the custodian records so i i prepare those i also um, uh, even though i don't script witnesses my uh, my boss that's what she prefers so so I've drafted scripts for, for um, several different witnesses. Uh, I got to do the one for the um, pathologist in the, uh, in the first murder trial. And that was quite interesting. This, this pathologist came in from Fort Worth to testify. And uh, this woman has had more, more degrees than an old thermometer, but uh, she spoke, you could tell she had, spoken and testified in trial a lot because she spoke in a way in a language that the jurors could understand she did not talk over the heads like you know i'm a lot smarter than you people and i know all about these dead bodies and how the how the bullet affected the organs and where it went in and where it went out but she kept the testimony so simple that all the jurors were able to follow her and she was she was excellent and um, she's actually the uh, the same pathologist that we'll have on uh, one of our trials that's coming up next year. Um, 
In fact, we have four pending capital murders in our county right now, uh, which is pretty amazing because before I got there, they hadn't, well, before these four came up, they hadn't had a capital murder in, in this district for since 1993. And now we have four. And the first one that will get tried is scheduled to go to trial in February. That may not occur until later because the, uh, the defense is claiming they have 40 experts that they want to call to testify. <laughs> so, um, so it may not happen that quickly, but this, that capital murder regard is re- in regards to a, a mom and her boyfriend who uh, uh, allegedly uh, killed a two-year-old little boy. And um, um, the autopsy, the autopsy shows that, um, that he was either beaten to death or drowned because uh, they apparently she put him in the water to try to revive him, but I think they'd already beat him to death, but they, they took him to the hospital and he was pronounced dead at the hospital. But um, uh, that that's going to be a hard case to try. Um, and then it's so her and her boyfriend are both charged with capital murder. And then we have also a, a capital murder where last year, about this time, I guess is about the middle of July, we had a, a standoff, a SWAT standoff in uh, Leveland where a guy was just firing randomly out of his house and uh, he ended up killing the uh, SWAT commander and injuring a local officer and uh, I think another officer as well. And uh, we're not, we took death off the table on that one. Well, no, we did not take death off the table on that one. The fourth one we did, uh, it's, uh, instance i think it occurred not sure if it occurred in 2021 or 2019 i think it may be 2019 it was before i got there uh, a young man uh, in his 20s uh, took the life of his mother and uh, i think we've taken death off the table on that one because there's some mental health issues involved with him so but um, um the other things that i do to help pre- prepare for trial i uh I, I uh, prepare all the pretrial motions and I e-file those. Everything now is e-filed. We don't file anything by hand with the clerk's office anymore. It's all electronically done. And uh, fortunately, that system to e-file with has gotten a lot more accessible. Before, it was very difficult, but now it is usable. And I've e-filed so many things in the last six months that I can almost do it in my sleep. But um uh, I prepare all those and file those uh, pretrial motions. And uh, I, I also review the indictment carefully to make sure that uh, the wording is correct and that we don't have any, any fatal errors in that. Um, and that's the indictments, the charging instrument that you have in criminal cases and in felony cases that, that the grand jury returns when they return a true bill, uh, which means that they've found that there's probable cause to believe that uh, the individual did uh, commit the offense that's charged as set out in the indictment. Um, so those are, those, those are the main things. I also help uh, make sure that our, our part of the pretrial, I prepare the witness list and the expert witness list. And we kind of try to make sure that those people are, are ready to go. And then uh, um, if there are any, any reports like uh, DNA analysis or drug analysis reports that come from the, uh, the DPS crime lab, then those things uh, we need to have those filed at least 20 days in advance of, of trial to be able to, uh, 
uh, use those without having to call them to, to prove up the chain of custody and all that, that part. So those are the main things that I do to help her. And then whatever else she tells me to do. Um, but it, it's been a great experience. Um, I interviewed for that job in October and she actually offered me the job during the interview. And I didn't hesitate about taking it because I wanted to be back into the actual, uh, uh, courtroom and, and doing trials and things like that. Reading contracts all day was worse than watching paint dry. So uh, it's it's been a lot more exciting. Um, we've had some changeover. We there was another attorney that started in our office about three weeks after I did. He retired a few weeks ago with a week's notice, and then our uh, our investigator that we have uh, he retired as well. We got him replaced and she's working on replacing the attorney that left, but uh, we've got plenty to do in a, in a small office because of COVID we've got a backup of about 200 cases. Uh, the nice thing about getting these cases tried and getting lengthy sentences, suddenly other defendants that are waiting trial decide, well, wait, what was that plea you were going to offer me? I think I want to take that because the juries are being rougher on them than, than a lot of the pleas that we've offered. So we're trying to move as many cases as we can trying to catch up and uh, we're making headway, but it's a, it's kind of a gradual thing because every month we have another grand jury meeting and we indict more people. So we have to try to get more cases cleared in the month uh, than we have indicted at the beginning of the next month. So uh, that's a lot of what I'm doing. It's a, it's a different challenge, you know, and after, you know, the old teaching old dogs, new tricks, you know, after practicing law as many years as I've practiced, I've, I find myself always getting into a job of doing something I've never done before, but that kind of keeps you fresh and keeps you thinking because you're, you're having to use a different part of your brain and, and, uh, it's a lot different prosecuting felony cases than it is defending them. Um, I don't know if y'all have heard of the Michael Morton case. Um, this was a guy down in uh, round rock in Williamson County, just on the North side of Austin that got convicted several years ago of killing his wife. And, uh, turns out he didn't kill his wife and there was a piece of evidence that would have uh, absolved him, but the, the DA's office sat on it. They did not turn it over. They didn't have it tested for DNA or anything like that. Did they didn't give it to the defense or even let them know that they had it. Well, once they found that and they tested it, found out that, that it wasn't him because it was somebody else's DNA that was on it. They ended up catching the guy that actually did it. And Michael Morton was, um, he was released from prison. He was, um, he was uh, absolved of any responsibility. And of course, when you get put in prison wrongfully in Texas, you get paid a good sum of money. I think it's um, 40,000 a year for every year that you're in prison. So it, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, you can't give, you can't give those years back, but um, they did change the law. And now what's required, none of this uh, uh, surprise evidence, um, the DA's offices, all, all prosecutors' offices in Texas, as soon as you get evidence, whether that's a report from law enforcement or it's a, a, a different witness that comes forward or a, a report that comes in from uh, the Department of Public Safety on drug analysis or DNA analysis, we have to make that available to the defense. And if we don't, 
you know, we, uh, we can get in a lot of trouble. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a primary thing to make sure that all evidence is turned over and made available to the defense. In fact, we've got a, a portal that we drop those things into and, and the uh, defense council can access that via email. They can, they can access that with the email and password and they are able to download and have the same things that we have. And so there's no, there's no criminal trial by ambush in, in Texas. And uh, that's good. It should be fair. We, we want, we want the trials to be fair. Uh, our, our goal is to see that justice is done. And, you know, many people think that justice is the outcome. Uh, our belief and our position is that justice is the process and you protect the process by making sure that that people do uh, receive due process, they get a fair trial, they have they should have adequate uh, legal representation, and they should have, you know, the opportunity to review all the evidence. And if they want to go to trial, then then they should they should have a fair trial, it should be a fair and impartial jury that uh, that listens to their case and, and gives them gives them a verdict. And, and that's where the justice is. It's not, it's not, well, it's, it wasn't justice because we didn't win. That's not justice. Justice is the process of making sure that people's rights are protected and that uh, they have a fair trial. And, you know, is, is, the, is our system perfect? No, but is it, is it probably one of the best in the world? I think it is uh, because everyone's entitled to a, a trial in front of their peers. And um, so that's that's kind of the goal that we have. We 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 don't hide anything from anybody. We we operate our office from a position of full integrity, and uh, it's it's our goal to uh, make sure that uh, you know the cases that we try are cases that we think should be tried. And with as many cases as we have pending, we kind of have our choice as to which ones we want to try and which ones we want to plead. And um, so it's it's a great experience. It's a lot different than what. Uh, uh, what I was doing before and working with uh, vocational rehab and uh, Randolph Shepard matters and, and reviewing contracts for the state. Uh, but it, it's a great experience and uh, uh, there's really nothing like being a, a felony prosecutor. So does anybody have any questions? Chris, we do have a hand in Zoom. Okay. Area code 808 ending in 606. Hi, uh, aloha. I'm, I'm calling from Hawaii. Um, the reason I'm calling is, uh, I think there's an article out there called It Matters Who the DA Is, written by Yvonne Abraham. Good article. Look it up. What do you do when you have a DA, you've got a case, and the DA refuses to look at the evidence? You've got it. Then he tried to pass it off as a civil case. It was uh, identity theft. So he had me go to a judge. The judge looked at it and wanted to know why my lawyer and I were there because it was a crime. So he sent it back to the DA, and the DA refused to look at the evidence, and there was no cybercrime unit in the office, and they didn't do anything, and the guy ended up getting away with it, and he has my information that he can steal from me for the rest of my life, my Social Security number, my date of birth because he was a friend of mine and stole my money and I'm totally blind and the DA didn't understand blindness and why how can you be vulnerable you must be stupid what, what do you do in a case like that that's criminal 
but they don't see it that way. Well, actually, there is there is something that you can do. You can file a grievance against the uh, district attorney, and they may think they're above reproach. But every every attorney in every state has uh, ethical rules and considerations that they must follow, and um, that kind of situation. Um, they are they are elected beings, and and that's the other thing that uh, can be done is you you see if you if you find someone that wants to run against him, uh, they they are not uh, above the law, and and in each case should receive due consideration. And obviously, identity theft is a crime; it's one of the harder ones to prove. But that doesn't mean you don't proceed with it and give it do some investigating and give it an opportunity. So I'm sorry that that happened to you. Uh, unfortunately, like every other uh, position in, in the world, there are, there are good DAs and there are not so good DAs. Uh, well, Steve, I you had a question? And, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Chris, have you, have you come across any cases? Uh, I, sorry, of course. Have you come across any cases uh, in this uh, stage of your prosecutorial career or otherwise uh, where juries for any reason, although you found the evidence was sufficient, you went to one trial if it weren't, uh, declined to decline to convict, and if so, what lessons did you learn from those? Well, when I was a defense lawyer, um, I always wanted to find juries that declined to convict. That was all what I was looking for. Um, as a prosecutor, so far the the jury trials that we've had, I've given you all three that we've had in the last seven months, and unfortunately, the juries have seen what we saw and have convicted. I, I think what, what you want to make sure you're doing as a prosecutor is you you take the, the strong cases of trial. If you don't think you can prove it, you don't take it in front of a jury. Uh, it's already gone in front of a grand jury who found there was probable cause to believe that that the trial, uh, I mean, that the offense occurred, but you don't want to go in front of a jury with a case that you don't think you can prove. And so since we have the opportunity to choose which cases we're actually going to prepare for trial and take to trial. Uh, you don't want to take a case to trial. You don't think you're going to win because who wants to lose? Um, but, you know, juries, juries are, you know, it's, it, they're an interesting animal. I used to think when I was, uh, when I was a, a baby lawyer that I could predict a jury. And I, I figured out rather quickly that that's impossible. Um, the things that you think they will key on and that they will think are important. They're like, Oh, did you say something about that? Um, so uh, it's juries are unpredictable. You don't know that sometimes the art and some people will say the, the most important part of a trial. And I think in some cases it's true is the jury, the jury that you get seated. And many people think, well, you get to pick who's on the jury. Well, you really don't. You basically get to unpick the ones that are the least desirable and you get stuck with who's left. And sometimes that's a good group and sometimes it's not as good a group. And, uh, but we don't, we don't take cases to trial that we don't think we can prove. If we don't think we have sufficient evidence, we're not going to take it to trial. We'll, we'll either dismiss it or we'll plead it to a lesser charge or, you know, enter into some discussions with defense counsel to figure out something that's acceptable to them, but we're not going to take a case to trial that we don't think we can prove. Any other questions? There are none in Zoom at this time. All right. Thank you. Just a minute. Let me come over here, get you, get a microphone to you here. Uh, Would you go before a judge or a jury? 
if I was charged, I would want a jury because, because you've got, you've got, you know, basically everyday, everyday citizens that aren't as, aren't as versed in the law. I mean, they will be given the law by the judge, but you've got 12 minds. And since in, in a jury trial, you have to, in a criminal case, you have to uh, prove beyond a reasonable doubt to 12. All you need to do is get one of those 12 to say, uh, uh-uh, I'm not going there. Uh, I'm not going to convict. Uh, I, I don't believe that this happened or I don't believe that it's that, you know, I don't believe what's, what's there. So if I was, if I was charged with a crime, I would, I would want a jury of 12 because you just have to convince one of those 12 that, that they shouldn't vote guilty and you, you'll hang the jury and mistrial and that will result in a mistrial. And at that point, the prosecutors either have to choose to retry the case or make a better offer or dismiss the case. So uh, I think in almost anybody, if given the choice, they'll, tr- they'll go in front of a jury rather than a judge. Any other questions? Any more questions on Zoom? Any, any hands up out there? No, sir. Not at this time. Okay. Um, the, uh, the grand jury process, and, and I actually got to serve on a grand jury when I was living in Austin. And that's, that's an interesting process. That is a secret uh, process. That I, I never thought I would get an opportunity to be on the inside of a grand jury, but I was. And uh, I got to do that for three months in Travis County. And we met every week, sometimes for a couple of days at a time. And the either an assistant DA or the DA herself, or uh, and they they would come in and they would bring bring these cases and explain what they had. They'd bring police officers to testify, and sometimes uh, civilian witnesses, and uh, we would listen to what they had. Now, the interesting thing about that grand jury process is you're just getting the state side. Uh, they're not going to let the defense counsel in to try to argue differently. So all you have to find is that there's probable cause to believe that that offense occurred. And if you get that, then you vote. It takes nine votes to, to get an indictment or a true bill. If, if the grand jury is like, yeah, no, we're not, we're not going for this. And, and the vote is, is less than nine or it's, or it is defeated. Then the person is no bill. Now, the only other option that the grand jury has is to say, we'll pass that, bring us some more information. We need to look at some more things. And the interesting interplay on a grand jury is that, you know, we had a couple of people on there that didn't like um, undercover operations from the police department. So their, their position was if it's, if it's an undercover uh, police operation, we're not going to vote to indict no matter what they did. And of course, the argument that I presented to them was, well, you know, they were operating undercover, but if the person did not uh, choose to engage in that activity, they would not get, they would not have gotten charged with a crime, but that didn't seem to matter. Uh, Some people, you know, just do not agree with the idea of undercover operations. And so sometimes we'd have to take those cases up when they weren't there. Um, But it just takes nine votes, nine out of 12. There's 12 that sit on a grand jury. Uh, and it just takes nine votes to get an indictment. And once that happens, then the judge will review that. 
and the judge will set a bond. So, and then a warrant will be issued for the person that says you've been indicted. You've been charged with the offense of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Your bonds, $25,000. So, so the person will either come turn themselves in or they'll get arrested, brought in, and they'll be magistrated by a judge. And then the next thing that happens after that, they'll go to jail unless they can get a bondsman to bond them out. And normally that takes anywhere from 10 to 20% of that bond amount. So if the bond was set at 25,000, they'd have to come up with anywhere between 2,500 and $5,000. And a lot of them will take payments, but a lot of them won't. It all depends on, on the, who the person is and, um, what type of case it is as to what, what the risk the bondsman wants to take because the bondsman's got to assure the court that they're, they're promising the court that they will make sure that, that the person is uh, there for trial uh, or for any hearings that they're ordered to be at. Um, now there's one other interesting thing that I just did for the first time a few weeks ago. Uh, we had a, a criminal defendant that was charged over in Cochrane County and he was bonded out, but then he skipped and disappeared. And so he, this case came, it started in 2019, but he's been on the loose. We didn't know where he was. There was a warrant out for him. Well, we found out last month that he had gone to the state of New Mexico and you know, people that get in trouble tend to get in trouble wherever they go. Well, he got in trouble and stayed in New Mexico. So he was sitting in jail in Clovis, which is in eastern New Mexico. And in order for us to get him to be able to try his case, we had to do what's called a governor's warrant. And the way this process works, and this was new to me, too, um, we we prepare an application, uh, an executive agreement and uh, get certified copies of uh, the indictment and other things from the clerk's file. And we send this packet of information to our governor's office and they prepare their paperwork. Then they submit it to the governor of New Mexico and she reviews their paperwork. She signs off on it. Then she sends it to the sheriff in New Mexico and says, okay, if, if Texas sends a deputy over to pick this guy up, then you let them have him and they've agreed to bring him back once they're through with him. So uh, this guy's sitting in jail in Clovis charged with aggravated assault on a peace officer, evading uh, criminal damage to property. And I think one other charge, we've just got him on an evading arrest with a vehicle. So, uh, but he's got enough priors that he'll be enhanced up to a first degree felony. So he'll be looking at, 25 to 99 or life because of his prior criminal behavior. And uh, so once that goes through that process, then we'll be able to send the deputy over to, to Curry County, New Mexico, pick him up from their jail, bring him to our jail, take him to trial. Once we get that done, then our deputy will return him back over to New Mexico so they can take care of him over there. Needless to say, he's probably not going to breathe much free air for the next uh, 30 or 40 years. He's, he's probably found himself uh, in a position where he's either going to be locked up in New Mexico or Texas um, for the next several years. But that was an interesting process to learn how that works and how you, how you do extradition and get people from uh, out of one state in back, back home where you can take care of them. So 
very, very interesting things. There's, there's always new things to learn. And I think the longer you practice law and the, the different things that you do, the more things that we learn and that, uh, you know, it goes back to, you know, when, well, when you went to law school, you learned all the law, right? And it's like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's impossible. <laughs> so, but you learn how to access what's there and, and how to, uh, how to practice. And that's, I think that's the important thing that we learn as we continue to practice. It's not something that you get down perfectly because the law changes uh, sometimes on a weekly basis. So uh, any other questions? Yes. Yes. Hawaii has her hand up again. Okay. I'll get her in just a minute. Uh, in view of Cynthia's absence, and she was going to talk to us about legal ethics. She's been here. Could you talk about some of the ethical issues that DAs face? Uh, yeah. Excuse me? Oh. He, he um, took hello? another question from the room. Sorry about that. I didn't realize that was happening at the same time I unmuted you. I apologize. Hang on just so, one second. So I, I was just going to ask about uh, ethical issues that prosecutors face. Oh, we don't have any ethics. What are you talking about, Steve? Um, I think the, <laughs> the greatest thing as far as ethics, ethical issues that we face are the, the fact that uh, we don't take cases to trial that we don't believe are just and that uh, uh, we give, we, we, you know, we are not there to, you know, we're, you know, to hang extra, extra uh, skins on the wall for another trial that we won. And, you know, our, our whole goal is to see that justice is done and, you know, justice may be a conviction. Justice may also be an acquittal. It just depends on what justice is. And it's, it's that protecting the process, not the result. So those, those are the major things, you know, we, we have the duty to disclose uh, to defense counsel, anything that we have in our file with regard to a particular case and that not don't take a case to trial that, uh, that you don't believe is, is actually true. You don't maliciously prosecute people that you don't have evidence to uh, proceed with. Uh, I'll go ahead and take that question from Hawaii now. Thank you, sir. So, when you have jurisdiction issues, you've got a person that committed a crime in two states, and then you were saying before how you have them in one state, and then are they finished with the uh, sentence in one state and then sent back to the other state? Are they serving concurrent sentences because they committed multiple crimes in multiple states? How do you resolve that? I'm just curious. Well, it's, it's, it's my understanding that um, uh, normally they will get credit for time. If they're locked up, if, let's, let's say in the case that we've got pending right now, let's say that uh, we take him to trial and he gets 25 years. And then we send him back to New Mexico after we've had the trial and they try him and he gets, he gets uh, 30 years over there. Um, before they they'll he will he will stay in their jurisdiction until they're through with him and let's say they let him out in three years well that's not going to be enough for our 25-year sentence so the next thing will happen is they'll notify texas that you know we're about ready to release old joe blow do you want him then uh, we'll go through that process of of getting him released to us and we'll pick him up and deliver him to the department the texas department of criminal justice and they'll, the prison system, the Department of Criminal Justice will determine how long uh, they want him to spend and how much credit that he will get for that time that he spends in New Mexico prison. 
that answer the question? It does. So a 30-year sentence gets cut down to three years. So where's the punishment? Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and and unfortunately, in most states, you know, if you're unless like like in Texas, the things that keeps things from being uh, from sentences getting cut down really short are things like uh, if there's a if there's a deadly weapon used, a person has to spend at least half the sentence before they're even eligible for parole. So even if they got a 30 year sentence, they would have to do at least 15 if there's a deadly weapon used. Uh, if there's, if it's a, um, there, there's some other, what, what we call three G offenses. Um, either it's a deadly weapon or let's say it's a continuous uh, sexual assault of, of, of children they can they can be required to do all their sentence without any without any early release because of what they did um and there's there's a few things like that but your general cases like burglary or possession of of methamphetamines or cocaine or things like that uh there's there's basically a schedule that they show us what when a person's eligible for parole and and they've you know a 25 year sentence you may only do in texas right now if it's not a deadly weapon or 3G offense case, you may only do about four years for that 25. But if you misbehave in prison, that four can go up to five, six, seven. So you end up getting to stay longer. But you're el- there's eligibility for parole if you behave yourself in um, in in general cases. But that's that's to cut down on overcrowding and things like that. And and they also make money when people are on parole too. So that probably has an impact on it as well. Thank you, sir. Any other questions? All right. Uh, hearing, hearing no questions. This is, uh, and I, I apologize that this is not what you tuned in for. I know you wanted, you'd much rather listen to uh Cynthia Hawkins uh, regale you with the 10 ethical pitfalls for attorneys. And uh, I'm sure she would have done a much better job, but uh, uh, we wanted to take advantage of the opportunity that we had uh, today with, with this, uh, with this zoom time. Uh, I would invite you to uh, join us tomorrow afternoon. I believe that's at two 30 tomorrow afternoon. We will have a special treat uh, of the history uh, and current uh, status of fraternal benefit societies in the United States. And we will have the senior vice president and general counsel of Woodman Life, which is uh, has their headquarters just a few blocks from here in downtown Omaha. And uh, Lynn Esplin will be uh, presenting that. And if you have no background or, or knowledge about fraternal benefit societies i think you'll find this very interesting it was a it was an interesting way that uh, that people in america took care of each other before the days of medicare and medicaid and all the the uh, social programs social security and things like that um, uh, woodman was founded in i believe around 1890 um, and it's 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 a very interesting concept and, and way of uh, uh, people taking care of each other and um, it they're not near as you know they're not near as much uh, uh, in vogue and and uh, as active as they were 
uh, earlier in uh, in the uh, in, in those days of the early 1900s, mid 1900s, but they are still alive and well. And it's an interesting it's an interesting way for for families to help take care of themselves and and each other. And uh, so that will be tomorrow afternoon at two thirty, and that will be. I think you'll find that is an, an interesting treat. And if she doesn't tell you a, a great story about uh, about Woodman, I will uh, I will tell it tomorrow uh, after she finishes. Uh, I'm hoping she'll tell the story. If she doesn't, I will. That's your uh, that's your uh, cliffhanger for tomorrow uh, because. Um, I think you'll find it the, the the story that I have to tell you very interesting. I'm just not going to tell you what it is till tomorrow. And uh, thank you all for joining us on Zoom. Thank you, uh, Doug, for streaming for us. Thank you for our um, our uh, Zoom host as well. I don't remember. I don't think I got your name, Nancy. Nancy. Nancy thank you yes. so much, Nancy, for your time today. You're very welcome. Great meeting you and great presentation. Thank you. And thank you all for, for joining us today, uh, both here in person in Omaha and those of you on, on Zoom and those of you on ACB Media. We certainly enjoy the opportunity to uh, present before you. And if you have any interest in joining the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys, you can contact me. I'm the president, Chris Prentice. My email address is cdprentice, and that's P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E at gmail.com. My telephone number is 806-283-8227. Our dues, if, if you are an attorney, are, are $40 a year or $100 for three years. If you are a law student or interested in in pursuing the law we have student memberships for ten dollars a year and that will you know avail you to the benefits that uh, that we have available and uh, our website is aavia.net and we will we're continually adding content to that Um, yes Yes, and we, we can all, associate members, and anybody can be an associate member, and that's $20 a year. You don't even have to have aspirations to be a lawyer. You can just say, I like to hang around with those people. They're really nice. And that's 20 bucks a year. We only charge you $20 a year to hang around with us. Um, but we will gladly take your money. Um, our treasurer is Dave Adams. Dave is not with us this week. He and his wife, uh, unfortunately, got struck by the COVID bug, just like uh, Cynthia Hawkins did. And, um, but if you need to contact Dave, Dave can be reached at area code 215-500-2402. And, uh, he's the one that would, would take the money. Don't send me your money. That's not a good idea. Um, but, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to visiting with you tomorrow at two thirty central time when we will have our presentation uh, from Woodman Life, and uh, again, thank you to our to our team from from uh, ACB Media, from Zoom, and all the rest of you. Thank you for participating with us today. Have a good evening. See you tomorrow, Chris. I'm streaming it. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it, man. Sorry, I couldn't get that to play. No, no, that's not a problem. We, sometimes we have technological issues, so it's okay. <laughs>
ACB, let's see, am I on? Yeah, I'm on. ACB Media 3. Hey, we've got COVID-19 testing, accessible COVID-19 testing, which is coming up at 4 p.m. here. That would be 4 p.m. Central or 5 p.m. Eastern, right here on ACB Media 3. We're going to take a quick break and do some housekeeping, and we'll be back at 4 p.m. with Dan Spoon and the rest of the crew, and uh, that should be an interesting one to listen to or to participate in through Zoom. You're listening to ACB Media 3, which is normally treasure trove, but nevertheless, it is a part of the ACB Media Network. <laughs> 